and we are recording in progress recording with dr murray sabrin on tuesday march 21st 2023 at 2 and 9 p.m eastern time and as always guys if you want to support the podcast you're watching on rumble click the little red button for locals you can support the show for like a couple bucks a month exclusive stuff all that good stuff um and you can use promo code tommy to get some free but with that with that self plug out of the way uh dr sabrin thank you for coming on here and you are i think answering a lot of or attempting to answer a lot of questions that a lot of people have and it's exactly who is vivek ramaswamy but with that, sir, could you please introduce yourself to my audience? Yeah, uh, I'm Murray Sabrin, Emeritus Professor of Finance at Ramapo College of New Jersey. I retired in July of 2020 after 35 years of teaching finance to undergraduate students, taught several courses, corporate finance, securities investments, and my favorite course, financial history of the United States. Uh, so that is a course that really gives students the uh, opportunity to learn how our country evolved from the lenses of finance. And it incorporated politics, obviously, economics, philosophy, and uh, students, I think, got a first-rate understanding of how America went from this agrarian economy in the 1780s, um, when the Republic was formed, uh, to this uh, massive uh, $20 trillion-plus economy, high-tech economy. Uh, but we have, as we know, fundamental problems. It's called the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and all the other Fs that are out there. Fractional Reserve Banking. So on Substack today, I wrote a column about uh, why we should abolish the Fed and the, and the FDIC and have free market banking. And if we had free market banking, it would be wonderful. But going back to myself, um, I've written four books since I retired, two on healthcare, one on the business cycle. And the latest one is Navig um, From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, An American Story. It's my journey from uh, coming to America in August 1949 when I was an infant through the New York City public schools, uh, the, the city colleges, Rutgers University for my PhD, beginning to teach uh, in the South Bronx uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, realized that was not going to be my full-time long-term career and I decided to go to graduate school full-time so I can get a PhD and teach geography, but through a long circuitous route, which I describe in my autobiography, I wound up teaching finance. And uh, it was one of the great uh, experiences of uh, my life because I wanted to teach at the college level. And uh, as I point out in the book, um, my life is about perseverance, positive mental attitude, and a little bit of good luck because I was at the right place at the right time when a finance professor left uh, the business school a week before the semester began in September 1985, and I was at the right place where I was asked to take his position on a temporary basis, and that turned into a tenure-track position. And um, as they say, the rest is history. And uh, on the way, I wrote a book in, in the mid-90s when I was on sabbatical on how to create a tax-free America, something that I think a lot of people would like to embrace, how we can get rid of the income tax and all the other taxes and have an economy based upon free market principles of voluntary exchange. So if you want something, you pay for it. If you don't want something, you don't pay for it. And then the tricky part comes, what about national defense? So I have a whole discussion in that book, Tax Free 2000, about how we can have national defense using voluntary means. And and then um, and then in, in uh, March of 1997, I was minding my own business one Sunday when I got a call from the chairman of the New Jersey Libertarian Party, where we were living at the time, asking me if I would uh, consider running for governor. 
And I said, well, that's not on my uh, agenda this year. So uh, I talked it over with my wife, the president of the college, the dean of the business school. And I decided to run for governor and not having run for political office at all. And uh, I found out that uh, one of the things New Jersey had, which I didn't know, was a matching funds program for gubernatorial candidates, where if you raise a certain amount of money, you get matching funds, funds from the state. And so that was our goal to get into get the, the matching funds, which required me to be in three debates with the two major party candidates. And so by mid-August, we only had raised $70,000 and we had to file an application September 2nd with uh, showing that we raised $210,000 and made commitments or spent that amount of money. So we uh, got a fundraiser who uh, was doing fundraising letters for the Libertarian Party. And he sent out a fundraiser to libertarians across the country and we raised $150,000 in two weeks. And so we filed our application in early September. Initially, the election commission rejected our application. And then we went to um, an administrative law judge and uh, she approved the application and went back to the election commission. And on September 19th, I became the first third party candidate in uh, New Jersey history to um, uh, get matching funds. And I was on three debates with uh, Whitman and McGreevy. And uh, I pointed out how we could make New Jersey better using free market principles. And although I didn't win, I didn't come close to winning, there was no expectation of winning. Uh, what I accomplished was uh, we got automobile uh, insurance deregulation four years later when Jim McGreevy, a Democrat, became governor and he implemented my plan, deregulate the market. And what's happened since then, more companies have come to the market, rates have come down, and there's never been an automobile insurance crisis since then. Uh, one of the other issues was the uh, speed limit on the New Jersey uh, highways. It was at 55, which of course was very slow That's for terrible. New Jersey Turnpike and the Garden State Parkway, which are major super highways. And I said, we should raise it to 65. And six months after Whitman was reelected, she raised it to 65. And then another thing happened, which is part of case law in the state of New Jersey. I came home one uh, October afternoon and there was a note in my mailbox from a sergeant of my town's police force saying I violated ordinance such and such because I had a political sign on my front lawn. I said, that's free speech. It's my property. I can put any sign I want on my property. So our campaign attorney went to the Superior Court judge. He threw it out as a violation of my free speech rights. And that's not part of case law in New Jersey that you are allowed to have a political sign on your own property. Believe it or not, New Jersey had crazy laws. And we still have in Bergen County where I live, we still have the blue laws. Some uh, businesses are closed. Said, and if you go said, into the big box stores like Costco, they rope off areas where you can't buy clothing or other items. And here I am living in Southwest Florida where the, it is everything is open on Sunday if you want to. And so there's a big difference between living in Florida, which doesn't have any blue laws or any restrictions on uh, consumers on Sunday compared to Bergen County and Paramus, which has uh, uh, several major malls, they have very restrictive blue laws, where if you go into your own office on a Sunday, you will be cited for violating the town ordinance against working on Sunday. And so here's another example of dumb government regulations, of regulations that don't allow for equal protection under the law, because if gasoline stations could be open, hospitals could be open, restaurants could be open, movie theaters can be open, then everybody should be open. Either you close everyone down or you open everything. And this is why libertarians like myself are frustrated with the laws that we have in this country because they, they violate people's fundamental rights guaranteed to us in either federal and or state constitutions. My, uh, my 
whole mom's side of the family is from Bergen County. Ah, uh, yeah, my my grandparents' house, uh, well, what was both the past, but yeah, it was in a cloister. And, uh, yeah, that was just north of where we lived in Leonia and Fort Lee. We lived right near the George Washington yeah, Bridge, which, yeah. which was a great stone's throw from Manhattan. Yeah, no, I, I spent a lot of my a lot of my summers, not all summer, but like a week or two. I have very fond memories. But I also know that New Jersey sucks. I always remember my grandpa and my grandma just hating it because it was always just it was like it was like a commie state, and it was like there's I've always just known. And then the other half of my family is from New Hampshire. Live free or die. And so mm -hmm. even from like a little kid without any like political bent being put on it, I just knew in general that like one side of the family loved where they were because you could ride around on a four wheeler with a shotgun and like an open <laughs> bottle. And then the other part, other half of the family was like, you got to make sure your the rubber on your tires is a certain width because it's the ninth Sunday before Mark. And it was just, yeah. it was always just kind of a, kind of a, you know, a commie crap hole. But, um, yeah, uh, I actually read in 2021, for the first time, uh, Creature from Jekyll Island by mm -hmm. J. Griffin about about the Fed, and I always heard about the Fed. I'd always I'd loved just all things kind of unconventional history, military industrial complex, the role of the the national security apparatus, the entrenched intelligence community, kind of the unelected elite, the blob, sure. the senior executive service, whatever you want. And then, you know, even before Eisenhower, like Spedley Butler and Woodrow Wilson and right. kind of talking about this weird extra government. I always, but for whatever reason, I was just never interested in, in the Fed. It just kind of seemed boring to me. And I finally read oh. that book and I've, I truly understand that it is, it is the keystone. It is the foundational structure for kind of, everything that's gone wrong in this and not to not to immediately just because you i also have to be wary of my own human tendency to want to find a boogeyman and put all my mm -hmm. problems the fed's the reason why i'm five nine and not six four and it's like that's not no 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 that's not the fed's the reason my girlfriend left me no it's a, you're a fat drunk that's why so it's like i gotta i gotta also you know be wary of the fact that it's not responsible for everything but it is responsible for for a lot of it and um yeah it's 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 hard to see so let's play devil's advocate then right so if we're coming from an agrarian economy in the 1780s to what we are now from SpaceX to Apple to you know just sure. I was just watching a documentary last night on uh, a 250 million dollar penthouse in Manhattan and yep. you know near the Central Park I love skyscrapers it can't all be bad then, right? The Fed. It can't just playing devil's advocate. We can't throw the entire baby out with the bathwater. Or to play devil's advocate to my devil's advocate, would it be even better without the Fed? Not that you have the answer or a crystal ball, but if you want to take a shot. Well, that's what I wrote in Substack, on Substack today. Okay. Is that we didn't have a Fed uh, until 1913 when it was was created. It didn't go into operation until 1914. And if you look at the, a lot of the statistics of the 19th century, I mean, it was the period when we went from an agrarian economy of 3 million people. I don't know what the population was in 1900, but this the post-Civil War period was the period of massive industrialization in America because we had relatively sound money, whether we didn't have any uh, institution creating money per se. 
interest rates were relatively uh, uh, benign in terms of flat. Uh, prices were flat throughout the whole period. If you look at the price index from 1800 to 1900, it was, it was flat, except for the Civil War, where the South was printing money, the North was printing money, the greenbacks first came about during the Lincoln administration. And so we've had booms and busts throughout the 19th century, not because we didn't have a Fed, but because the banks were creating money. And, and that money went into the economy and bid up for the prices of real estate and other goods in, in the economy. And that gave us uh, these artificial booms. Uh, and then we had the government subsidizing the canals and the railroads causing distortions in those two sectors of the economy. But the entrepreneurs of the 19th century were the, are the real heroes of America because they're the ones that laid the foundation in industry after industry, the railroads, rubber, oil, steel, uh, food, um, uh, agriculture, uh, just textiles you used to go on and on. And in, the, and, and in the 20th century and 21st century, it's all the high tech. It's the radio, the TVs. And of course, now the Internet uh, and everything that goes with microprocessors. I mean, the, the great advancement took place because of entrepreneurship, not because of government. And I like to say, um, I just came up with this the other day. We should think about uh, the three eyes. Invent invention, innovation, and investment. That's what creates prosperity. People have an idea, they have a prototype, people flock to it with savings, that investment goes into capital formation, and boom, a business is born, an industry is created, and living standards go up. And of course, that's investment means entrepreneurship. You need entrepreneurs who can put all this together. And uh, one of my favorite books is called They Made America, A History yeah. of Entrepreneurs in America. My, my, my um, grandpa in Bergen County had that huge book, yeah. <laughs> it's a marvelous book, and it ends, I think, around 2008, 2009. And there have been more entrepreneurs created uh, uh, that came into America in the last few years because uh, human capital is endless. There's no such thing as a limit on human ingenuity. And that was the theme of the late Julian Simon's uh, um, work called the ultimate resource. It's not natural resources, it's the human mind that is the ultimate resource. And that's why you have places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, with virtually no natural resources, and they are incredibly yeah. prosperous, incredibly yeah. prosperous. So you can imagine if we had entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs unleashed in America, with all the savings that are here, with all the uh, natural resources that we have, uh, you would have uh, by far the greatest living standards higher than we have today. And the same thing with Russia, by the way, Russia has incredible natural resources. When I was an undergraduate, I was a history major and a geography minor, and I took the geography of all the regions of the world. Uh, and this Soviet geography was fascinating because you, you I remember they have, at that time, the mid 60s, they had 20,000 years supply of coal in the ground. Imagine that if they could use that and get clean energy out of out of the coal and of course, nuclear and oil and gas that they have. I mean, incredibly rich country. If they had the correct economic system, if they got rid of the oligarchs and, and the crony cronyism that they had there, their standard of living would be incredibly high. And so China is the same thing. They have a lot of natural resources. Unfortunately, they have the Communist Party ruling them. But you look at countries that were ruled by the Communist Party, like Vietnam, we were there many years ago. 
and the place is thriving because you have a lot of entrepreneurship. Even though the communists politically are in charge, you have a lot of uh, economic freedom in those places. We were in Cuba. You're starting to see more and more market approaches to the economy in Cuba, especially agriculture, because people need to eat. And so they real the, the Castro regime realized you got to free up agriculture to uh, make the economy uh, more um, more humane for people that live there. And we saw this firsthand. The, uh, the auto mechanics are doing great. The people in the tourism area are doing great. Cuba should be a natural trading partner of the United States. And you have these dumbbell conservatives and liberals that don't want to trade with Cuba. So who are the isolationists in America? They're the people who don't want to trade with other countries. North Korea should be folded into South Korea and you would have an incredible powerhouse uh, uh, peninsula there. And so, um, we had unification between East and West Germany. We were in Germany in 1992, which we were on a bus tour. We went into East Germany. It was incredibly poor, incredible after decades of communism. And the West Germany was vibrant, where I was born, by the way, in, okay. in, right outside of Munich. So the evidence is so overwhelming that you free up the economy of a country, entrepreneurship kicks in and goods and services appear all over the place. And uh, it saddens me that we don't have this on an, on an international scale, but we've gotten a, a lot further than we were back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. We still had a lot of collectivist economies around the world. Uh, you hardly have any communist uh, countries today, China, uh, North Korea, uh, Cuba, but China freed up their economy in the late 70s after Mao Zedong died in 1976. And um, if you look at the landscape of Singapore and Beijing from pre-1979 to the present, it's astonishing. The skyscrapers, the buildings that they have. Of course, there's a lot of cronyism there. The, the Communist Party is, involved, is heavily involved in the economy as well. So they have a long way to go to be a much better economy. And um, we should just trade with people who want to trade with us. Trade is the lifeblood of civilization. Think of not having trade. Where would you get your microphone? I, where would I get my laptop? Where would I get my cell phone? The, the vision of labor and international specialization, it's what made prosperity boom the last 200 years. And unfortunately, the Bernie Sanders of the world and some of the Republicans as well don't understand that. Because if they did, they would reduce the size and scope of the federal government and get rid of all these unnecessary regulations. And we would lift people out of poverty so quickly. Uh, it, would, it would be astonishing. And by the way, after World War II, that was happening. The poverty rate was declining steadily after World War II until what? 1965, the Great Society kicked in and um, the breakup of the black family took place out of white families as well as mothers got more benefits when the husband was not there than they were in the household. So you talk about destructive policies and the Fed is another example of a destructive policy that supposedly had good intentions but remember, it was created during the progressive period. What was the progressive period? It was the period where business people got together to create these alphabet soup agencies in order to get more cronyism in the American economy. Because the last thing a lot of big businesses like is competition. And one way to stifle competition is to put regulations in in the name of the general welfare when it's really a crony um, uh, concept. And that's what the Federal Reserve was. It's a cartel of the bankers so they can continue their fractional reserve banking and um, and not get into trouble because if the 
The Fed was created as the lender of last resort. We see this right now with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. All the depositors, even with more than $250,000, are going to be made whole. Not, so you talk about moral hazard, Tommy. This is it. When the government creates moral hazard, we have it in New Jersey also. At the shore, people bought, uh, built houses near the ocean. There's this big storm like Superstorm Super Sandy uh, in 2012, I think it was. Mm -hmm. We just had the big hurricane here in southwest Florida with Ian at the end of September. People got wiped out who lived uh, at the coastline because they couldn't, uh, and they got government insurance because no private insurer would insure that because the, the rates would be so high. So every time the government tries to do something uh, in the name of the general welfare, of helping people, it's counterproductive it, uh, with the Fed, with the income tax as well. Um, and uh, the history of the income tax is so fascinating because Originally, only 2% of the American people paid for it, uh, paid the income tax. It was for and, the war, uh, right? It was for wars. Well, it was done, it was done in 1913, and World War One started in 1914. Yeah. So the Fed and the income tax were created a, a year before World War One started. We didn't get into the war until 1917 because the American people did not want to fight a, not a European war. They understood this is not our fight. Yeah. And um, we got dragged in because Wilson wanted the war ironically or not ironically pathetically he ran as the peace candidate in 1916. Yeah. his slogan was he kept us out of war and then a month after he was inaugurated in um in april 1917 he uh, asked for a declaration of war against germany because of the submarines that were yeah. uh, u-boats that were attacking american shipping but um and the Zimmer Zimmerman Well, the Lusitania and... was not a neutral ship. It had a no, lot of arms. No, it was carrying, they, they showed that with expeditions down there. It was carrying torpedoes and bullets yeah. and artillery shells. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so the, the point, Tommy, that I've been making to people for the last uh, several decades is anything the government says, the opposite is true. And um, how do we know if the politicians are lying? See if their lips are moving. Okay, that's yeah. the other That's My, the other standard. I, and I, I have kind of a, a, a darker take on that. And Wood Woodrow Wilson also wanted the he wanted the League of Nations, right? The precursor right. to fun fact, do you know he was actually being advised by like a thirteen year old named William Sidis, C S I D I S. I think he had the highest IQ in American history. It was like three hundred. He was he he was he was advising when he was a teenager. He was advising Woodrow Wilson at, at the League of Nations. Yeah. And I think he ended up going insane and like collecting trolley cars or trolley like times not important. Um but no, I, I have kind of a darker take on the, you know, how do you know if a politician's lying, their mouth's moving? How do you know if a politician's good? It's because someone tries to kill him. I mean, yeah. Andrew Jackson, right? Killed yeah. the bank, right? They tried to kill yeah. him with the two revolvers. JFK, right? Issued silver-backed currency and wanted to uh, work with the Soviets to go to the moon. Uh-uh. He didn't want any of that, right? Reagan wanted to get rid of nuclear weapons. John Hinckley, who was supposed his, John Hinckley's family, was supposed to have dinner with the Bush family yep. that night. And John Hinckley just walked up to Reagan and started firing wildly. Not that there's any conflict of interest there. Not that, I don't know, Bush Sr. would have been president. But that's, you know, another spiral for another time. But it does seem it does seem to be the way that, and what you said about competition, the Federal Reserve wasn't, it was not, it was not rainbows and puppies. I mean, Nelson Aldrich met with, was it J.P. Morgan? Was, was, was it Rockefeller? Was Rockefeller yeah. still alive? Oh yeah, oh yeah. John D. Rockefeller was like yeah. he lived, I think, into the 1920s. I think okay. it was 97 when he died. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and was it J.P. Morgan that said uh, competition is a sin? I think that, that was that quote. I'm not familiar with. But, I think uh, it was Morgan. It might one of the bankers there 
yeah they, the quote was competition's a sin right and it's we're gonna we're gonna turn this thing into a big uniform bubble and then hammer everyone because prior to that there was like didn't banks have their own individual notes yeah, they're backed by gold and silver. And yeah. uh, when people got worried that the bank didn't have enough right. gold and silver to back up their notes, they had the a bank. bank run. Natural selection. That's it. Well, the thing is that they committed fraud. I mean, you cannot issue more notes than you have in reserve. Just as when you put your car in a garage, you don't expect the, the owner to uh, lease out your car when you put a car in a garage. It's the same concept. Banks are warehouses. And so in my Substack column today, I, I discuss simple solutions for, for to eliminate future banking crisis, which is make, uh, first of all, make the dollar good as gold again, which is that the dollar was originally defined as an ounce of gold, tw one twentieth of an ounce of gold. So we have to restore the gold standard. One, this way you don't need the Fed. Two, banks need to have 100% reserves for checking accounts. This way, uh, if you have a checking account, you know the money's there. You're never going to have... Uh, the bank will never be in a position where they can't redeem all the checking account accounts that they have. Secondly, savings deposits should be time deposits. It could be a one-day time deposit, a three-day, a 10-day, a 30-day, all the way up to 30 years or more. In other words, you lend the money to the bank for 10 days, they lend it out for 10 days for short-term capital needs for a company. This way you have a match between the okay. borrower and the lender. Now the question becomes, who takes the risk if the, if the lender should default and probably the shareholders should be, uh, their capital should be uh, uh, discounted or at least um, uh, drawn down because they're, they're the owners of the bank. And so the, the bankers have to be good fiduciaries for the shareholders and good fiduciaries for the, uh, for the uh, depositors. So it's simple to fix it. The problem is the bankers don't want it because it means they make a lot less money when you have a quote, a hard a banking system and um, the regulators don't like it because they're, they're unnecessary. So you have a confluence of interest who want to keep the current system going. Uh, the crony business people, the crony bankers, uh, the, the politicians, the bureaucrats. So uh, w the solutions are very simple. Free markets will allow people to take on as much risk as they want. And if you, and if you take on the risk, you suffer the losses and you profit from the gains. You don't socialize the risk and privatize the profits. That's not the way a free market works. And we are so far from that system because so many companies get bailed out uh, during a, a crisis. We had this during the uh, housing bubble going uh, bursting and uh, Bear, Bear Stearns got taken over, uh, Merrill Lynch got taken over. And so the government go, comes in there, but we can avoid all of this by having sound banking, which are principles that are tried and true in finance. Are um are oligarchs avoidable? Because I I tend to I tend to well I was listening to these 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 two fat comedians Tim Dillon and Ray Kump and they were talking about they're like what do you think would happen like let's say you just wiped out the West and you established this utopia socialist communist society they're like what do you think what do you think the Jamie Diamonds would do what do you think the James G Zangletons what do you think the Alan Dulleses do you think yeah. they just would say oh I can't play anymore. Those operators will win any system. That's why they are who they are. They could Alan Dulles could have been the the in the CIA in the 60s. He could have been in the King's Court in the 1500s. Right. They're right. operators, right? LeBron James could have played football, baseball, basketball. He's going to win cuz he's right. an athlete. The operators are going to operate. And I, maybe it's perhaps a jaded view, but I look at it like 
I'd rather live in a system where the operators are pit against one another. Mm-hmm. And so we have a chance of a, you know, a rising tide lifting all boats rather than a communist dictatorship where all the operators are on the same team and there's zero reprieve. You're just well, that, nailed every day. That's what a meritocracy is all about. And and one of the best books on this, by the way, there's, there are many, but one of them from my perspective of money and banking is Murray Rothbard's The History of Money and Banking, which you can read at the Mises.org website for free. And it's a series of essays that he wrote on the evolution of American uh, banking and finance. And it's just fascinating because it just shows who the players were, uh, the people who were the cronies. And also he shows that in The Mystery of Banking, his other book, on uh, which is, by the way, it was published 40 years ago, uh, which is kind of neat. It's a nice anniversary that people should have a discussion about banking in America. Because most people are clueless about the structure of banking. They don't understand fractional reserves. They think that uh, banking, their uh, deposits are protected. Yes, up to 250000 but what I'm proposing is that we have go to a free market banking system, which would eliminate all the regulators and uh, all the crises that uh, have come about in the banking sector decade after decade after decade. This is the second banking crisis we've had since uh, the Great Recession of 2008. So you can see they happen like every 10, 15, 20 years. And um, if they if they bail out the banks and uh, First Republic, which is in deep trouble also, is taken over by uh, either J.P. Morgan or other bankers. Uh, they just continue because the Fed's going to still be in operation, printing money, manipulating interest rates. And that's how the cycle goes over and over again. So uh, this is nothing new to me. I've been studying this for 50 years, uh, Tommy, and um, it's getting worse and worse and worse because uh, the federal government spending is really out of control. And the, uh, the Federal Reserve is basically an arm of the federal government, even though it's called a private uh, institution and they're supposed to be independent, but that's nonsense. It's uh, the the Federal Reserve always does the bidding of the president who's um, in office. That's been the history of the Federal Reserve. Johnson bludgeoned William McChesney Martin in the 1960s when the Fed was raising interest rates in the mid 60s uh, to fight off inflation. And uh, he backed off and then of course, the inflation accelerated into the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Nixon got the uh, monetary policy one from Arthur Burns, his buddy from the Eisenhower administration in the early 70s. Um, Jimmy Carter got uh, G. William Miller to uh, boost the money supply uh, in the late 70s. Volcker came in and uh, did what uh, had to be done, reduce the money supply, raise interest rates to stop the inflation. And then um, you get Greenspan in there in 87, uh, and he was there for, what, uh, 19 years? And um, he was doing uh, what he had, what he thought was good policy by uh, pumping money into the system when the crash occurred in 87. And then the dot, and then he helped uh, fuel the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble, and Bernanke did the same thing, and Young did the same thing, and now Powell's doing the same thing. So it just goes over and over again. It's just... Uh, uh, wash, rinse, and repeat, one of the chapters in my Navigating the Boomba Cycle book. It's, it, it, nothing has changed. The players have changed, but the policies don't change. And that's why it's frustrating that they don't learn from their mistakes. And uh, that's why we just have to keep on talking about this and uh, reach as many people as possible. So I was in the classroom for 35 years. I reached a small number of uh, people, students, and now hoping with your podcast and other podcasts, I get... Uh, on a podcast that could reach a million people, a half a million people, um, 
and talk about what's really the issue facing the country. The real issue facing the country, Tommy, is that we don't have a constitutional government anymore. We have, we have a budget that is not consistent with Article 1, Section 8 of the authorized spending of the uh, federal government. The government is spending money that it's not authorized to spend. And that's why we, we know this. No one's talking about it in Washington. So the question is, what do we do about it? I offer solutions of how we could phase out Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, so your generation can be responsible for your retirement with income and um, uh, monies for health care instead of having Medicare and Social Security. And uh, that brings us to um, Vivek, the uh, 37 year old <laughs> entrepreneur who's running for I president. I completely forgot we were to, I forgot. I was, yeah, we we're getting, going down the, the Federal Reserve wrap. I was going to say, all I, all I got from G. Edward Griffin's book was buy gold. That's the only thing. That, <laughs> that was my takeaway. It was like, I don't understand this. I have a biology degree. Buy gold and hide it. But yeah, uh, yeah, Vivek Ramaswamy. Savior. Or I think, as you said, uh, is he a savior or a Soros plant? What is he? Your crystal ball. What that, is that's he? A good I went to his website, and it's amazing for a presidential candidate. His website has no policy prescriptions whatsoever. There's sort of a bumper sticker type of website of, on the home page. I'll look at it right now. Yeah, it's called Shared Identity, Merit, uh, Dismantle the Bureaucracy, Restore Free Speech, okay? Uh, defeat. Now, here's the one that's really troubling, Tommy, that really has me concerned about his candidacy. He says, defeat communist China economically so we don't have to do so militarily. What is he talking about? China is a big trade partner of the United States. We, we buy stuff made in China. They, they invest in the United States. They buy stocks. They buy bonds, whatever. Uh, they buy treasury bills, which they're not doing anymore, I understand, because they're concerned about the, uh, about the geopolitical situation and the, uh, and the value of the dollar. Trade, again, to repeat, is the lifeblood of not only our civilization here in America, but globally. And to say that we have to feed them economically, what does that mean? What does that mean to feed a country economically? The American people and companies trade with China. Their companies trade with us. Of course, they have an imperfect society, just as we have an imperfect society. We have the Washington Party running things of Republicans and Democrats, and, then, and you have a few good people in both parties, not many in the Democrats. You have a lot of uh, a few good people in the Republican Party, and then you have the Communist Party overseeing their economy. All, what I'm suggesting is let's get politics and government out of the economy and allow people and businesses to do what they do best, which is to provide goods and services that people want. How, how hard is that to understand? Joe Biden should be able to understand that. Kamala Harris should be able to understand that. AOC, who, is an, uh, who has an economics degree, should understand it. And uh, Vivek should understand it as well. I mean, he's worth a lot of money from what I read on, on the Wikipedia page. He's worth $600 million for a young man. He should know that it's trade that's important, not defeating a country economically. I have no idea what, what he means by that. I, I mean, this is the thing he has to explain to people. What do you mean by defeat them economically? Or so we don't have to fight them militarily? What is that all about? Does he really want to fight a nation that has nuclear weapons, that has a, a sophisticated military equipment? I mean, th this is the jingoism that I've heard all my life from the 50s to the 60s to the present. And it's troubling. And um, what we need, and the solution is very simple, the three Fs. We need to downsize the federal government and taxes. We need to get rid of the Federal Reserve and, and we need to have a peaceful foreign policy. Those are the three principles that founded this country. I mean, I'm an immigrant, Tommy, I understand this. Uh, Vivek is an, uh, not an immigrant, his parents were immigrants. 
But American politicians who take an oath to, to uphold the Constitution, they should understand it. They should read uh, Washington's farewell address about no entangling alliances. They should read Jefferson about um, commerce with all, entangling alliances with none. I mean, the founders gave us on a silver platter the blueprint for a free and peaceful and prosperous society. And both political parties have been undermining it with really dumb policies. And I've been writing about this uh, virtually all my adult life. And um, I, right now in my post-college teaching uh, era, I want to uh, reach as many people as possible because there's just a lot of misinformation out there, especially on healthcare. Now, I've written two books on healthcare, and healthcare is a mess. It really is a big mess because we have third parties involved, the employer-based insurance, the insurance companies, and the government. And, and um, Big Pharma is not doing us any favors, uh, to say the least. So uh, we need to have a wholesale restructuring of our society in terms of the, the federal government, uh, uh, education, uh, pharma, uh, medical care, uh, energy, transportation, and just go down the list. And the things that people uh, enjoy with low, relatively low prices is the marketplace, the Amazons of the world, the, the online uh, websites uh, where, where you can buy stuff, the big box stores, the, the, the boutiques on, uh, on Main Street in your town. Uh, we moved to Southwest Florida uh, two, nearly two years ago. Uh, we moved from uh, one town to another and we've shopping some of the local boutiques and they have uh, great products and so uh, unique products that you don't find in in the, in the big department store so uh, this is the wonderful thing about america it's diverse without anyone planning the diversity of america mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in the corporate world or the entertainment world or the sports world there's a lot of diversity there and, and for people to make diversity the the signature issue that uh, the government should be promoting it doesn't make any sense when i left the business school at ramapo college and we had faculty meetings, Tommy, it looked like the UN. You had people who's, um, who either came from overseas or their relatives came from overseas. It looked like a model UN. You had 35, 40 faculty members, and you probably had 25 countries represented there from every continent of the, of, of the globe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess where I'm looking at from what Vivek said about China is, I guess, one is Thucydides. Tra and and I should clarify, this isn't necessarily something I condone or defend or agree with, but more so an objective analysis. It seems that our, our dollar is not backed by gold anymore. Instead, it's backed by the U.S. military, which in many ways is much more formidable than gold. And I think, you know, what you and I are looking at and oftentimes, you know, myself and the guests run up against this roadblock is we're looking at it as as rational, yeah. I would think, loving people, right? And obviously that's biased. I'm not gonna say I'm a bad person. It's like it's like when you say the brain's the most important organ, like, well, that's the brain saying the brain. It's it's kind of biased, right? The best podcast is Tommy's podcast. So where where'd you hear that? I heard it on Tommy's podcast. Okay, yeah, I get it. But we're looking at it as like rational, sober people. We're not looking at it as psychopathic operators with geopolitical empire on their mind. You look at Vietnam or Korea, I'm sure, and you could argue, you know, domino theory and got to contain Soviet, okay. But there's also a lot of, I mean, wars, rackets, Smedley Butler. That was 30 years yeah. before Eisenhower's military industrial complex speech about going in and knocking over these countries for bananas and rubber and oil. 
that's what we've been doing and that seems to be and it's sad and i and i don't like it but it that seems to be what what natural selection has evolved for is an insanely massive world encompassing military corporate techno fascist hybrid mm-hmm. and so whereas you and i might look at it and go what do you mean defeat china militarily they're not looking at it in the same way as you know. If it's if someone said, Tommy, if 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 you go kill Doctor Saber, you can you can take his car. Well, I would say, yeah, but then he dies. The psychopath would say, yeah, who cares? But now you have another car. Mm-hmm. Well, no, no, why? I don't I don't want to do that, right? I don't think that the people at the helm are looking at it in the way that the average American or average Chinese who just wants a safe neighborhood and schools for sure. kids and a Walmart they can go to and get pancakes whatever i don't think they're looking at it like that and i think the people that have trickled to the top i yeah i don't think they're looking at it rationally of we should be backed by gold and not have a i think they're looking at it as we are the hegemon we are the i mean that's got to be the most intoxicating power ever you are controlling you are up there with alexander the great and napoleon and and genghis khan You, you can go carpet bomb any country you're the united states you can do whatever you that's got to be more intoxicating than a fifth of vodka. I mean, so I guess my point is, is I think that's probably what he's looking at. And then the other thing is, is, I think he's doing a poor job, but a job nonetheless of imitating Trump. Mm-hmm. I think he wants these brash, masculine machismo. You know, I think he had another quote. He's like, China's going to start paying their taxes because there's a new daddy in town. Like oddly, oddly sexual kind of like you know uh rambo-ish there's a new daddy in town like i don't know if that's really who he is it's it's one of two op it's one of two possibilities in my mind he's either a psychopathic geopolitical operator or he's a hollow suit imitating trump and he's backed by nothing much like our dollar Mm -hmm. I, i don't know which is worse i really don't know well, the thing is, he has to be vetted by uh, all the talk show hosts uh, uh, and, and sit down and go over specifically, what do you want to do? So I would ask him, <laughs> what should be done about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, foreign entanglements, the Ukraine right now, which is the hot issue? Uh, what should be done with uh, subsidies uh, across the board from corporate subsidies, solar subsidies, agricultural subsidies? In other words, what should be the optimum size of the government? What should be the proper structure of money and banking in the United States? In other words, pin him down on specifics because these are all on his website, all bumper sticker slogans that he has. And there's no policy page on his website, which I find remarkable because if you're going to run for president, you're going to be overseeing a $6 trillion budget higher in two years because the next president is going to be seeing, overseeing more than a $7 trillion budget. That is, they say, a lot of mucho dinero in some parts of the country. And uh, why is the government so large today? Uh, Are the American people benefiting from it? And here's the challenge I would have to the American people. If you think the government is spending money in your best interest, why do we have a deficit? Why Why don't you ask the government to raise your taxes so we don't have to borrow any more money? And the other point I would make if if government is so good, why, why do we have to pay taxes? Why don't we voluntarily pay for all the expenditures of the federal government? Let's have a, 
let's have an experiment for a year or two of having no taxes, uh, no federal income taxes, and see how much money the people are willing to contribute voluntarily to fund the $7 trillion budget. My guess it would be very little money going into the federal government. Uh, maybe Warren Buffett wants to spend, uh, wants to be taxed more, and so therefore he'll pay he'll pay more in taxes. But this is the hypocrisy that goes on in Washington D.C. That if you really think the government is underfunded, then send in a check to the Treasury. There are people who send in money to the Treasury. Why? I have no idea to pay down the federal debt. But the federal debt is going up by well over a trillion dollars a year. And the next recession, if it's deep enough, we could see a two and a half, tr three trillion dollar deficit. So. Um, we're at a crossroads, that proverbial crossroads in America, and we just keep on furthering, going further collectivist over time. And I've seen this in my lifetime since I was a college student in the 1960s. No matter who's president, spending keeps on going up. It doesn't matter. And um, this is the thing that the American people have to realize, that uh, they're voting not for uh, sound principles. They're voting for on personalities. So Trump was able to capture the uh, electorate in 2016, first in the Republican primary. And um, and Biden, I mean, my goodness, we got to be the laughing stock of the world that the guy that didn't campaign, that can barely put sentences together without a teleprompter, is president of the United States. I mean, this is remarkable. It really is remarkable. And uh, the question I would have for anybody is, would you want Joe Biden to run your corporation, your your New York Stock Exchange company. Would you want him to run your company? Well, if not, then why is he running a $7 trillion operation called the federal government? I mean, that's the question you should ask these people. Uh, would, is he competent enough to run a small bank, let alone a large bank? Is he competent enough to run the local the boutique or uh, Home Depot or Amazon? And if the answer is no, then this guy is unfit to be president. That's not to say that you should be able to run a business and be president, because there are people who, be, who became president that didn't have that much entrepreneurial skill. But the point is, Joe Biden is so incompetent, so shallow, um, so inept that uh, he's not president. There are people pulling the strings behind his presidency. And we know who all that is. It's Susan Rice and Obama and the Obama people that were there uh, when he was president, they're the ones that are writing all the executive orders and Biden's signing them. He has no idea what he's signing. Um, so uh, this is the tragedy of American politics is that we're spending too much time, Tommy, on politics and not enough on producing wealth in this country. Yeah, it kind of seems like, it kind of seems like we're at this like point where, where we're playing like Monopoly Oh, yeah. We're realizing that like we're losing, but it's like me playing it, and it's me playing a bunch against against a bunch of ten year olds, and at a certain point I'm like, I'm two hundred pounds of muscle, I'll flip this table, and I can just throw these kids two at a time into a wall. I'm not losing this game. That's what I fear, is we're sitting here, we're watching China's military rise, and it's it's. It's formidable, but we could still we could still crush it. And I think we're looking at it, and it's like, on one hand, do we restrict spending and start paying off our debt and being more rational and not having 890 military bases around the world? Yeah. There's yeah. one option. Yeah. The other option is let's demolish our enemies and wipe out the dollar and start over and just keep kicking the can down the road like we've been doing for the last 110 years. I'm not too confident that 
the apparatus that's been running this country, this military empire for the last century, is going to have a change of heart. And it's like, let's start, let's start doing the right thing. I think they're going to flip the table. And it's, that's kind of a, a dark, I don't like it, but just over 1140 episodes of this podcast, I've, I've learned to stop put stop putting forward what I like and what I want to happen and just start to soberly examine what I think will happen. And I think that's where it's going. I think that we are, and this is my own, I speak for myself and Dr. Sabre and putting on my own tinfoil hat. I think we like that Russia and China are pairing up. I think that we like that NATO is coming more into the bosom of America against Ukraine. I think that we want China to move on Taiwan. I think that we are going to conveniently change the narrative and start coming out and saying it was a lab leak. And we are going to push China and Russia into a new Soviet boogeyman. And then we're just going to go forward with that. No longer have to address any issues. We're at war. We got to destroy them. They're evil. That's what I think it's going to be. And I don't know if we'll win, but I think that's what I don't like it. I don't want that to happen. But if I had to give testimony under oath on what I tr- or under like a lie detector of what I truly think is going to happen, I think it's probably going to be something like that. I don't like it. It's what I think is going to happen. And I think well, Mr. Ramaswamy might be tapping into that. Well, the thing is, uh, so much could happen between now and um, next spring when we should have a good idea who's going to be the nominees. Uh, I still don't think Biden is going to if if he uh, run if he does run. I think he could drop out uh, sometime next year and waiting in the wings, chomping at the bit to become the Democratic uh, nominee is Hillary Clinton. I think she desperately mm. wants to be president. I think she uh, feels that if uh, she lost to Trump and then she sees Joe Biden as president and she's saying, my God, where is this country going with yeah. Joe Biden as president? I really think she's just keeping relatively low, but keeping her name out there. And the Clinton people are, uh, are basically... Um, uh, very loyal to her, and uh, they would uh, jump at the heartbeat of uh, j- joining her uh, her campaign if she decides to run. Or put it this way: Here's what could happen, Tommy. And, and uh, uh, this may be a conspiracy theory, but that we know conspiracies do exist. I think Biden um, uh, announces a re-election. He clears the field, so no one runs against him, and then no one has a, a campaign apparatus in place. Uh, and then he decides in the spring of next year to uh, drop out and the insiders um, pick Hillary Clinton to be their uh, nominee. I mm-hmm. think that's that's a viable I like scenario it. for I- next year because it makes a lot of sense to me because who knows what Biden's health is going to be like a year from now. I mean, the guy is 80 years old and he's not in the best of health, even though the, he just had a physical and they say he's in good health. But cognitively, um, we know that something could happen in, in three months, six months. It could happen tomorrow. I mean, this is how fragile he is. I mean, you look at him. Um, he's a shell of, of where, where he was 10, 20 years ago. So, um, so that's on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, um, it's either, if DeSantis gets in, it'll be a, tr- a Trump-DeSantis race. And with this uh, overhang of the indictment coming from New York City, if it does come, uh, those are the two, quote, heavyweights in the race. Um, and Vivek, he's 37 years old. He could be in politics for the next 40 years um, because uh, that'll take him in, into his 70s. And, and DeSantis is young. He's also he's only 44. Uh, 
himself. So, uh, so the question is, will Republicans rally around Trump? Will they rally around DeSantis? Uh, who else is going to come into the race? And you got, you're seeing a very interesting split in the Republican Party. You have uh, DeSantis and Trump um, critical of the Ukraine um, policy of, the, of Biden. And then you have people like Pompeo, the former CIA director, and Nikki Haley, who's also declared candidate, saying, no, uh, Ukraine, we have to support Ukraine. And Chris Christie has been critical of DeSantis's uh, uh, position on Ukraine. So um, will the Republican Party voters uh, support a candidate that's going all in on Biden's Ukraine policy or the uh, Republican voters saying, hey, listen, endless wars is not what we need this time. We don't need any more endless wars. We, we were in Afghanistan 20 years. That is unbelievable. We're in Vietnam from Johnson's buildup in 65 to the troop, uh, to the helicopters taking the people out of the embassy in April of 1975, 10 years. Plus, we were, had advisors before then. We haven't won a war, Tommy, since since 1945. And we've spent how much money on a war? How many Americans have died in wars and wounded and maimed? Uh, how many people have died overseas because of U.S. military invention in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Vietnam, Korea? Um, as you pointed out, uh, uh, War is a Racket, Smedley Butler. The other book is War is a Racket. And I, I, I'm sorry, War is the Health of the State by Randolph Bourne. Oof. That's the other great uh, book that's out there, essay, that uh, war is not for the average person. Again, having uh, gone through college during the Vietnam War and almost was the last person drafted in America in December 1972 when I was a full-time graduate student, I received a letter from the draft board um, in the December 1972, when I turned 26, saying you're no longer eligible for the draft. And the following month, Nixon uh, went to an all-volunteer army. So I went to a pre-induction physical in Lower Manhattan in uh, December 1972. And um, I, I was holding my breath because I knew I could uh, escape the draft if, I just, if they didn't draft me before my 26th birthday. And it worked out that way. So... Uh, uh, otherwise, I could have been the last person drafted in, in the country. So the Vietnam War was a total disaster. I mean, uh, what American is upset that uh, the Communist Party rules Vietnam? Does anyone lose sleep over that? Does anyone Vietnam think about is it? A, Vietnam is a, is a growing economy that people are very entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial. All of Asia is entrepreneurial. The Cubans are entrepreneurial. South Americans are entrepreneurial. It's only the, the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens don't like entrepreneurs, even though Biden said in the State of the Union, he's a capitalist. Well, if you're a capitalist, why are you doing all these government programs and government regulations? That's what the private sector is all about. And the nonprofit sector, I've written about how we can eliminate the whole welfare state by adopting uh, Peter Drucker's uh, great essay about nonprofitization from the Wall Street Journal more than 30 years ago. And to me, those are the three stools. Private sector, nonprofit sector and international trade and domestic trade and you got yourself the greatest economy the world has ever seen yeah it's like when you see it's like when you see like a fifth grader who's seven feet tall and you're like <laughs> dude just start learning how to dribble just start <laughs> i don't even care if you hate that just start it's like the united states our constitution and our physical location between two oceans right. with an Arctic hellscape above us and then needled down to a peninsula below us and with two mountain ranges and then all of the natural resources. It's like, what do you, <laughs> it's, 
it's it's you could be the best ever forever and mm-hmm. it we're just fumbling it but we do kind of have these two other aspects and what time is it yeah we got we got unfortunately we got to wrap this one up in like in like five minutes but uh I'd, I'd love to have you back on um we have like two parts that's coming into civilization that we've never had before and it's we have, but never at this this level of acceleration. Automation, obviously, mm-hmm. you have the Industrial Revolution, you have all the textile mills in Massachusetts and all that, whatever. But you have automation. I mean, true AI replacing artists, replacing people are like making Nirvana songs that never existed, and they actually sound like Kurt Cobain. I mean, we're hitting. Uh, it's not just replacing fry cooks. We're replacing everything. I mean, once you start replacing. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a doctor. As I used to joke is I wanted to be a, an, an anesthesiologist or a neurosurgeon. And my logic was is if I ever reach a point where those things are automated, I have a lot more I have a lot bigger worries than a paycheck because it means that Skynet's probably taken over the world. So like <laughs> that was my logic with that. Was like find the most intricate thing. And if that gets taken away, then it's probably at the end. But um we have automation at a blistering pace of acceleration. And there's this weird out where you used to have to flip the Monopoly board. But now, within maybe our lifetimes, maybe my lifetime, there seems to be this exit, this escape hatch where it's like, yeah, I might just go to Mars. Like there is this, maybe not my lifetime, probably not, but it's coming that there is this it is the new promised land that you just pilgrims get on a boat and they're like, screw it. Let's go wing it. Let's see what's out there. Maybe there's Indians, maybe there's smallpox, but you know, screw the crown. We might devolve into such a hellscape of bureaucratic red tape and automation that it might just be like Mars or bust. I don't know. I'm not for that. I don't want to go there. I personally don't care. I'm going to die here. But those two things are factors that we've never... You're always going to have militaries. You're always going to be printing fiat money. You're always going to have political egos. That's as old as time. Mm -hmm. These are two new things that we can't look back at Genghis Khan and be like, what did Genghis Khan do with AI? That wasn't there. What did Napoleon do about, you know, multi-stage rockets? He didn't. So those are kind of... I don't even really know if there's a question in there, but maybe that could... Maybe we could see the the beginnings of our, our, our next podcast together, but we are approaching a very strange precipice. Oh, there's no question about it. That's why it's so hard to predict the future. We know what trends are in motion with uh, AI. And uh, every time you've had um, automation or technology advance at a, at a pace that people have a hard time grasping, um, people have benefited from it. I mean, you look at the... Uh, automobile replacing um, the old-time transportation, uh, the telephone. I mean, it, it's uh, the cell phone, uh, the internet. I mean, we have this conversation now. We couldn't have this conversation 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And it, and if we did, if we could, it would be prohibitive cost-wise. I mean, it's just amazing how technology reduces costs, thereby increasing the standard of living. I'm on a laptop now that has probably have more power than the than computers. Uh, of uh, 40 years ago that probably cost a million times more than what I paid oh, yeah. for this computer or a hundred thousand times. Uh, and this is the amazing thing about technology. So I'm not worried about technology uh, replacing human beings. You still need human beings for a lot of things. Uh, 
And uh, I see technology as an adjunct to the human experience, not a replacement of the human experience. But who knows? I mean, in 50, 100, 200 years, who knows what the world is going to look like? But the one thing I do know is that if uh, advances take place, um, uh, longevity is going to increase substantially. I mean, I I saw a, a show on CNBC it had to be 15, 20 years ago where there was a futurist on who was saying that um, somewhere down the road where people have been living routinely to 150 years, 200 years in good health. Yeah. That, that is exciting for people who are going to be in that generation because that means you can have an incredible life experience and you'll be productive. And uh, that's why you need a free market to, to help get there because people need to save for the future. And if you save for the future with compound interest, uh, it's going to be great uh, for people who are vibrant in their 90s, 100s, 110, 120. And that's exciting because that means that uh, medical costs could go down substantially if people do the right thing, as we all know, in terms of food and uh, stress levels and what exercise and all the things that uh, your doctor should be telling you what to do uh, in order to... um, avoid any uh, major calamity in your life. And so we, there's a lot of work to do from my perspective in terms of money and finance and foreign policy, because uh, we just can't continue on the, on the current uh, road that we're on. It's just unsustainable financially and I think politically and, um, and socially, because there's just a lot of polarization in America. And uh, that's why um, I think we, we should have a discussion about is America ungovernable? That's the discussion we should have. And uh, I have some thoughts about that, given my um, political campaigns in a small state of New Jersey, where I saw the different cultures in the state. And I said, um, when people have that many differences of opinion in a a nation of 3 million square miles and 330 plus million people, it's tough to have one central government really uh, setting the rules because people have different values and preferences and goals and and whatever. And culture is a very important part of any society. And uh, when you have a clash of cultures, then it becomes ungovernable politically. I think, uh, and again, this this is just my kind of wild opinion, but (coughs) when you look at why people left Europe to come to the new world, they left the center of civilization it was the most as much as we look at it and we're like they're so primitive they were the blister they were the cutting edge they were silicon valley right printing presses and stained glass windows and paper and people left there on a boat that would take three months if they made it if they didn't die and when they do get to the new place There's no guarantee of anything. There's zero infrastructure. Right. There might be right. disease and there might be indigenous people who want to kill you. And if you survive all of those, you might be able to set up a better life. But then you have to ask yourself, why did people take that risk? Mm. And it's because they looked behind them and said, that thing is so screwed. I don't even care. Let's go for it. Wing it. I think that could be what we look at in the next century. Why would people get on a rocket ship that might blow up upon launch? Yeah. Why would they leave 2023 America? Why would they go for nine months and perhaps die from interplanetary radiation, stellar radiation? When they do land there, there's no infrastructure. There's nowhere mm-hmm. to go. Who knows what diseases are there? I hope there's nothing indigenous on Mars. I mean, good Lord. Why would you do that? Well, kind of look at the state of things now. And everything is upside down. Nothing means anything. There is no definitive truth. You might look around and be like, 
yeah, this weird world of grown men and thongs with rainbow hair twerking in front of children. Screw it. Mm. Get on the rocket ship. I'm single. I'm 32. I don't have a wife or kids. Let's go for it. Who cares? It's an adventure. <laughs> I think we might see something like that. But everybody listening, um, in the description are the links to your books, your Substack, your Twitter. Guys, please go follow him. Go check out more of his work. And I have another podcast in a minute, so I'm scatterbrained. If you could shoot me a text, and we will schedule another one, because I'd love to shoot the shit with you again, man. That was fun. All right. Thanks, Tommy. It's great. That was awesome. That was I genuinely enjoyed that. I, I, the best compliment I can give to anyone is to have you on my show. I don't have a boss. It's just me. So there's Thank no, you so much. There's no Thank focus you. group that's like, you should get duck. No, I don't. <laughs> no, it's, it's me I give you the stamp of approval for whatever that's worth guys please go check him out go follow him go check out his sub stack and uh, I look forward to chatting with you again man thanks Tommy take care now thank you so much you as well take care everybody Recording thanks stopped. for watching God bless peace <laughs>